Thank you, guys. Friends, Acts 27. We are nearing the end of the Acts series, and when I said that in the first service, someone clapped, which was awkward. Um, when we do our weekly prayer gathering on Wednesdays, which all are welcome to, 9 a.m. in the church office, we went around the room and introduced ourselves and said who we are and what chapter of Acts we started attending the church. So we've been here for three years, and by my count, we have three sermons left. So I'm going to be with us in Acts 27, starting in verse 13. We know that Paul has been on his three trials. He appeals to Caesar, and so he's placed on a ship to begin sailing towards Rome, and this is where we meet him and all those who are on the ship in verse 13. Now, when the south wind blew gently, supposing they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind called a northeaster struck down from the land, and when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Cauda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship, and fearing that they would run aground on Sirtis, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed and began the next day to jettison the cargo, and on the third day they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands." When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and have not set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. When the 14th night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms, and a little farther they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms, and fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under the pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved." Then the soldiers cut away the ropes and the ship's boat and let it go. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the 14th day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food. It will give you strength, for not a hair on your head is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. They all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship, and when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, will you take your words and will you, by your spirit, implant it in our hearts so that each soul this morning, believer and unbeliever alike, Here's exactly the word that you would have for us, that it would not return void, 
that it would bear good fruit unto life and repentance and faith and joy in you. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, friends, trial, then trial, then trial. It all happening in Caesarea, and now there's been an appeal to, to, to go to Caesar and to go to Rome, and so Paul is placed on this huge ship, and he is set off on the 1,300-mile journey from Caesarea to Rome. And just when you think things can't get any worse for Paul because he has endured all of these trials, wouldn't you know that the very ship that he is placed on is hit by a storm and ultimately sinks and they must swim to safety on an island? This is just terrible to hear out of the fire and into the frying pan for Paul. Well, speaking of ships sinking, my kids told me a riddle recently that I thought was pretty clever. And that is there's a boat on the water and there are 40 people on board and the boat sinks and 40 heads go into the water. But when the rescue boat comes, 44 heads are brought out of the water. How is that possible? 40 heads go in, 44 heads come out. It's because it was 40 heads that went in the water and 44 heads that came out of the water. Isn't that pretty clever? That really stumped me. So I thought that was great. All the heads that went in, all the heads and foreheads came out. That's a great riddle. It doesn't work with 276 people, but I thought you should know that this morning. Terrible shipwreck. Everybody, all 276 go in and all of them, by God's miraculous hand, are able to come out of the water and live another day to seek him and know him. Well, in the middle of like the terror of this storm, Paul gets up on two occasions and he gives two speeches. And when you put the two of them together, they actually form just a very simple thought, which is the main point of our sermon today. It's so simple a child can understand and yet so deep and difficult seasoned saints among us will struggle to apply it. And that is this, God's provision prompts happy praise. God's provision Prompts happy praise. That's simple. You don't need an MDiv degree to understand that. A child can understand when God gives me something, I should turn around and thank him for that something. That's what we teach our children at the dinner table. When we pray, God gave us this food, we turn around and give him thanks. Children among us can understand and apply that to their lives. But think how deep and difficult this is to be a watchful saint with even eyes to see all the ways that God provides day in and day out, maybe in ways we didn't want him to provide and maybe we were distracted by wanting something else than the thing he actually gave us, but having eyes to see it and having a heart that's willing to respond to him with gratitude, that is deep and wide and people who have been walking with Jesus for a long, long time are still trying to live this out in their lives. So let's watch it happen in real time. Let's see it in Paul. Let's apply it to ourselves. Verses one through 20, they tell us how we got in this mess in the first place. Paul makes this appeal. He's put on this ship with other prisoners, soldiers, sailors, merchants. They all go from Rome in the Mediterranean Sea to, uh, they go from Caesarea heading off to Rome. And it's October now, and nobody really sails on the Mediterranean from mid-November to mid-March during this time. So they're kind of cutting it close. 
and they try to get from the island of Crete to the island of Malta, and as they're traveling, this storm just hits them, and it rages for two entire weeks. And things get so bleak, you can read about it in verses 18 through 20. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo, and on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands, when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay upon us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. That is a bleak, bleak place to be. That's where Paul and his companions were. That's where some of us are. When we read about the storms in the text, it begs us to think about storms that rage here and now in this very room. And for some of us, those are huge storms that are on our horizon. We have been struck in this season with real tragedy and real loss. We might be smiling and well-dressed on Sunday morning, but there is a storm raging in our hearts because we suffer here and now. It's a big storm. For others of us, maybe even a lot of us, it's more the small storm that never seems to end. It's the closed door or the missed opportunity or the dead ends or the petty conflict or a season of drought or it's a season of singleness that I wish I was married and a single season of marriage that I wish I was single and it's a season of apathy and it's a season of misdirection and not knowing where I'm going. It's a small storm, And it's not really big and it's not something I can complain about, but it's just here today and tomorrow and the next day and the next day. For some of us, it's not the big storm or the small storm. It's the storm we've just come out of and we're still limping. Or it's a real fear of the storm we face ahead for the other shoe to fall and for something to happen. And we fear it and we are anxious about it. We know this well. Like Paul and his crew, when the sun and the stars have fled, there is nothing to lead us or to guide us or to give us hope in this very season. Saint, I know you know this and I know you have experienced this. And I don't know about y'all, but at times like these, when we suffer, when we face hardship, the last thing I want to hear is a praise report from someone for whom everything is going well, right? If that's you this morning and you're in a job that you love and is secure and you're in a happy marriage and you have 2.5 kids that always smile for your Christmas card, that's great for you and I'm happy for you most of the time. But to hear your praise report is not gonna scratch where I'm itching in the valley of the shadow of death. I need somebody who knows what I'm experiencing and feeling And so when Paul in our text and when saints in this church who suffer still have praise on their lips, those are the people that when I suffer, I want to sit up and listen to. Tell me what you are experiencing even as you suffer. That's what happens in verses 21 through 26. God's provision prompts happy happy praise. They're in the middle of this storm And it looks like they're all gonna die, but an angel appears to Paul and says, nobody on this ship is gonna die. Everybody's gonna live. 
And at first thought, it's like, well, that's great for you, Paul. You had an angel show up with special revelation, tell you what's gonna happen in the future. I'm a little lower on the ecclesiastical totem pole. I don't get angels. I don't get visions of the future. But what Paul does with that, what he takes with that is seeing God's provision and he shares three things to praise God for that are true of every single believer in this room come storm or still waters. What he sees in God is true for each of us. Look at verse 23. In the middle of the storm, Paul proclaims that he serves the God to whom I belong and whom I worship And then a little later in verse 25, he says, whom I have faith in. He rattles off these three things. He's a God to whom I belong. He's a God to whom I worship. And he's a God who I have faith in. That's a personal God. That's a God who is worthy. And that's a God who is trustworthy. You find a God like that, a God for whom those descriptions are true, And I beg you, sell everything you have and lay hold of that pearl of great price because he is yours and he is for you. That's our God. And I want us to savor each of these three Bs in our passage, to belong, to boast, or to believe in. But even as we do, and even as we think about these three, we don't get the luxury of being in an ivory tower doing theological pontification. We can't do that because all of these come to us on a boat that's about to crash into a reef and explode into splinters. This is real hardship and real suffering. So we don't have time this morning to be glib or trite or abstract or obtuse about theological things out there. We only have time this morning in suffering to talk about real truths in a real walk with Jesus that applies to me this morning. That's what we're gonna see in our passage. Number one, he says, the God to whom I belong. And that's probably my favorite one of the three. This is a personal God. He's not just a God we pledge allegiance to. He's a God that we belong to. We are held by him. I wonder Paul saturates his letters with in Christ language, union with Christ language. 164 times he tells us that we are in Christ, located in Christ. It's not just the benefits that he's given us. It's not just that God so loved the world that he sent his son to cancel the record of debt that stood upon us because of his death on the cross. It's not just what we said in our profession of faith that he will now impute us, not with our righteousness, but his righteousness. It's not just that he gives us a new life and a new heart and a renewed mind and a new spirit inside of us to follow him. These are all gifts, but it's not as if he gave us the gifts and said, tell me when you reach heaven and I will meet you there at the pearly gates. He says that this very Christ dwells in us and we dwell in him and his promises are our promises and what Jesus will inherit, we too will inherit and the power that raised Jesus from the dead, Ephesians 1 says, is the same power that dwells within us. I march through this life in any circumstance with the happy knowledge that I know the God to whom I belong. I belong to him. He's mine, and I am his. 
They say that there are no atheists in foxholes. And what they mean is when the bombs start to fall, you're going to get a bunch of deists. You're going to get a bunch of people who are going to throw up a Hail Mary to the mysterious expanse out there that if there is anyone or anything they can hear, please hear and please deliver. And that might be true of an atheist in a foxhole, but that's nothing like a Christian in a foxhole. There's no mysterious God out there. There's only the God who dwells here with us, Emmanuel, God with us, who has numbered the hairs on my head and knows the days I will live and is the very anchor of my soul. He is the God that I pray to in suffering and I can pray in a whisper because he is near to me in the darkness. He's the God to whom I belong. That's the first thing Paul sees and praises God for. The second thing he says is, he's the God in whom I boast. He says both of those together in verse 23, the God to whom I belong and the God whom I worship. Now think about this for a minute because this is curious that Paul would say this under the circumstances. It's curious that He's on a boat where everyone is freaking out and it's about to crash and people don't know if they're gonna die. And he chooses that as the moment to say, hey y'all, there's this God in heaven whom I worship. When I would think that that's the very time you kinda wanna distance yourself a little bit from any allegiance to a sovereign God who holds all things, right? When stuff hits the fan, that's when we start to distance ourselves. That's when we get squeamish about talking about the sovereignty of God. Like when Hurricane Ian is barreling down on the coast of Florida and someone says, don't you believe in a God who holds the winds and the waves? That's where we get a little sheepish as Christians and say, well, I don't know about all that and I don't know how much control he has over those things. We feel the desire to distance ourselves. But here Paul is in the dark on a boat that is about to crash. Everybody's about to go into the water and he is still saying, this is the God in whom I boast. I boast about him. Why is he doing that? Because friends, if the storm is the greatest thing on our horizon, God is not on our horizon. And worship is reorientation. If all I can see is the storm and all I can see is the suffering and all I can see is the hardship, worship is the wonderful antidote to say I am not seeing rightly. God is here on the horizon. He is the one who holds these things and he is the one whom I worship. Whether we get a guarantee that we're going to make it out of the storm alive like Paul does, or we don't get any guarantee like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that I'll make it out of the fiery furnace, he will still always ever only be the God in whom I boast. How could he be any less? My safety doesn't make him less worthy. 
He will go on being worthy even if I don't stay safe in my circumstances now. He is the God who is worthy for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, in life and in death. He is worthy. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. And I look out on this precious body and I know stories in which the Lord has taken much from us. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He's worthy. If I'm gonna boast in anything, Paul agrees with Jeremiah, let him who boasts boast in this, that he knows and understands and is known and is understood by the Lord. That's what I boast in. He's the God whom I belong to. He's the God who I boast in. Third, he's the God in whom I believe. I see that in verse 25. I have faith in God that, will be exa- that it will be exactly as I have been told. Friend, do you know that God is trustworthy? You know that he can't make a promise he's going to break. He can't foreordain something that's not going to come to pass. Peter calls God's word the living and abiding word. He quotes Isaiah that says, everything else can fail. The, The grass and the flowers can wither and fade, but the word of God is going to go on standing forever. Jesus says, let everything else fall away, but let not a jot or tittle of this word not come to pass. Whatever God says can only ever happen and be true for us in any circumstance because it is impossible for God to tell a lie. And so he swears by himself, this is my covenant and this will happen. And it becomes a bedrock to our soul. Whatever he says, I can believe and I can trust. I belong, I boast, I believe. I serve a God who is personal, who is worthy, who is trustworthy. When I see these things in any circumstance and I see God who is acting true to himself, well then God's provision, it prompts back happy praise to him because that's what I'm designed to do. That's our God. And I would close with that, but there's this curious little thing that happens towards the end of our passage that I want to mention, and it comes to us in verse 33. One more provision from God. In verse 33, it's the dawn on the 14th day of the storm, and they're about to shipwreck, and Paul stands up and says, hey, y'all, it's been two weeks. You've been doing nothing but fighting this storm. You haven't eaten anything. Let's eat something. Let's eat and get our strength. And then look at verse 35. And when he had said these things, he took bread and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Does that sound familiar to y'all? Have you heard that verse somewhere? Is that somewhere else in our Bibles? Like Luke 22, 19, Jesus and his disciples in the upper room. I'm gonna read Luke 22 while you guys keep your eyes on Acts 27. Jesus 
took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them. It's almost the exact same verse in the upper room as the verse on the boat in the storm, and this has sent commentators into a tailspin. Is Paul serving the Lord's Supper here? Is that what he's doing? Or is this just a coincidence of the words? And why would he serve the Lord's Supper if he got a bunch of unbelievers on the boat? Is he just serving the Lord's Supper to the Christians who are here and his breakfast to the non-Christians who are here? And if it is the Lord's Supper, where's the wine? What is happening here? Settle down, everybody. I'm okay with a little ambiguity here, but I am 99% sure that Luke knows what he's doing that it was not lost on him when he wrote the gospel and wrote volume two, the book of Acts, that he was writing the identical verse here. And whether this really is big C communion meal or it's just a little C communing meal with Jesus, it is still the shepherd of Psalm 23. He sets a table before me in the presence of my enemies. When I am pressed on every side, he feeds me. And is there any sweeter bread that comes to us than manna served in the desert? What is more precious in the storm when the clouds part and Jesus' kindness shines through in a moment and we're overwhelmed by his grace? How precious. Next week is a Lord's Supper Sunday. We're gonna show up here in this place and we're gonna do what I actually think is happening in this passage among the believers. We're gonna line up at a table in which our shepherd serves us a meal. He's the one to whom I belong. He's the one who I boast in. He's the one whose every word I believe and we will feast with the one who feeds us in the storm. Hallelujah. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, feed us even now. Don't make us wait a week. Your word is the bread of life. Man can't live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth, and we have tasted and seen this morning that you, the Lord, are good. So feed us, nourish us for the week ahead to celebrate you in all circumstances. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.